Everybody and welcome back to another edition of Unfiltered with Bob Z. And today we have a very special guest in the house. We're going to talk about some things dealing with social justice, excuse me, social justice and some uh, different things. But uh, we have our assistant Newport News Commonwealth's attorney, uh, Jennifer Williams. And she's, she has a few titles, but uh, the title that I like, to, I like to address her as is friend. So... Uh, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Uh, well, I guess they have the. Uh, you can do your disclaimer. Oh, go ahead. I, I, okay, you work that in. Question. I'm gonna work You're it. You're gonna work in. it in. Okay. Yeah, she, work it in. You know, she's a lawyer, so they they have a lot of disclaimers and buffers and, <laughs> and all those kind of things that you know us normal folk. But um, so I guess what I want to know, and I guess in this this era of um. I guess some people call it a social awakening. Some people call it maybe a, a, a rejuvenate, re, rejuvenation of the civil rights era. I like to call it the civil rights movement renaissance. Um, what role do you see yourself playing uh, with respect to uh, confronting the new attitude towards social justice? And what I mean by new attitude, um, I, was, I received a, a, a social media message the other day, and this young lady said that, she was in tears. She was a friend of mine, African-American woman, and she said she looked out on the block and she saw some white kids with Black Lives Matter signs on the block protesting. And she said it, 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 um, it just brought her to tears. To, you know, and she went out there and let them know she's thankful for them standing with us. I think that's one of the things, I mean, the youth were involved, but I think that's one of the things that we're seeing now, people from not only this country, but all over the world, London, Tokyo, Germany, everywhere that are, that are pretty much standing with us. But we're going to narrow that down and just say, what role do you see yourself playing in, in all of this? Um, obviously, that's a great question. It's a great topic. Um, so here's my disclaimer. My disclaimer is that uh, I'm participating uh, in Should this. I write this stuff? Yes, you can write it down. I'm participating in my own personal capacity. I'm, I'm not here um, as a representation of the Newport News Commonwealth Attorney's Office, nor any other Commonwealth Attorney Office in the state of Virginia. Um, so to get to your question, um, I think I see my role as multifaceted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, although I'm an attorney by profession, I wear many different hats. Um, uh, first, I'm a mother, mm -hmm. uh, so I see my role in uh, talking and advocating for my children um, to become a part of the social justice movement. Oh, wow. um, it is incumbent, I think, upon uh, all of us to, in some form or fashion, be a part of it. Um, so... Uh, I think my children need to be a part of it because, you know, when it's all said and done, one day I'm going to pass on. And 
um, this society, this world will be left to them. So I want them to be an integral part of what's going on um, because this is going to be their world that we're leaving to them. So I want them to understand some of the intricacies um, about what's going on, what it means to be a black man, uh, what it means to be black, uh, what it means um, just to be a part of the American society. How does that make you feel? Because I know I heard a lot of people say, uh, I have black sons, and, and I have black sons. So, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, at, at night, I mean, I'm, 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 feeling some, I'm feeling some kind of way. I'm feeling some kind of So as a prosecutor, with prosecutor or, you know, do you feel like a, like a kind of a double double role or double characteristics where you, you know, on one hand, you know, I mean, many people consider you part of the police structure or the justice system. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel with that and having African-American sons? Well, I think that goes into another piece of, um, of the fact that I have, um, that my role is multifaceted. So, you know, part of that is being a mother. The other part of that is part of my career at this point in time being a prosecutor. You know, although I'm sure there are lots of creative nicknames for prosecutors, um, I think I consider myself as a bearer of justice. Um, it is incumbent upon anybody who takes the role of a prosecutor to understand how much power we yield or wield, however, uh, <laughs> however you want to kind of see that. Um, Many times we make charging decisions. We make decisions of whether or not we are going to go forward with charges, whether or not we are going to add additional charges, whether or not we're going to offer um, plea agreements, um, uh, dispositions in terms of active periods of incarceration, probation time. You know, we have a lot of input as to what happens with a particular offender that comes within our purview. So in terms of this social justice movement, it's incumbent upon me to ensure that um, I not only check my biases, but I also participate um, with my colleagues in making sure that they check their biases too. Um, I think as a prosecutor, I bring a unique perspective to the table because I have black sons, mm. because I have black friends um, and friends of, um, friends of color in general, and Caucasian friends. So my background, my contact with um, lots of people in society helps me do my job better. So um, in terms of a prosecutor, um, I can take my background and look at a situation and maybe see that differently from some of my other counterparts who maybe have not had contact with some of the people that I have had contact with. Mm. So I think that um, I, I think that it's not a um, it's not an oxymoron to be <laughs> um, mm. a mother with black sons and a prosecutor. Both of those things can coexist. Okay, I remember the last time we spoke, the last or debated, or <laughs> <laughs> we we do this thing where sometimes we. Um, we agree. We just said we're gonna have to agree to disagree, and keep it moving. But the last time we spoke was was post um, George Floyd tragedy, but it was before uh, what has just recently happened uh, in Wisconsin with Jacob Blake. 
we hadn't, I don't think we've talked, well, we haven't talked politics um, since then. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I remember during that time, it was a, a call to defund the police immediately following the George Floyd um, tragedy. Or I think more accurate, accurately, that uh, should be a call to uh, reallocate funding uh, into community policing in initiatives and not so much, I, I do recall watching the gentleman who uh, who uh, killed two people with an assault rifle, AR-15, I believe it was, some type of long gun, run past tanks. Actually, like, I, I don't know if it was National Guard or was it just the, some of the police forces post 911, I know they got additional funding and they used some of those funding, some of that funding to um, <laughs> pretty much fortify the police uh, force where they have, uh, some of them have like, actually like combat vehicles that they use. I know we have some in Norfolk, so, you know, but I guess the question is, um, is this a step in the right direction to um, try to reallocate some of the funding? Uh, and, and each time, each time, it's, it's, and I was like, when, after George Floyd, that tragedy, I said, man, and I told people in confidence, I said, you know what? It's gonna happen again. You know, and I wasn't trying to be the purveyor of bad news or anything like that, but I said, you know what, it's, 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 it's going to happen again. So, and, and, and unfortunately, it, it happened again. So, I mean, did, did that bring you over to us? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll say this, I'll say this again, you know. Um, my job is to do justice. That's my, that, right. those are my marching orders, you know, and justice looks different ways in different situations. Mm. And so to your question about the reallocation of resources, I agree that I think the defunding police moniker, that, that, that's something right. that should um, be buried. Um, I, I do not believe in actually defunding the police. So to me, that means actually um, getting rid of police yeah. departments. That's what that means to me. Somebody's so, talking about that for right, real. Right, right. So take that, you know, public, take that out of your lexicon. So um, I do believe in police um, organizations looking at their budgets and seeing where they have room to take those excess funds and funnel them back into community programs. I think that, um, you know, over the years, the pendulum has swung in terms of kind of militarizing the police. So I think that's where you get the efforts of taking some, you know, um, some items which were originally designed for the U.S. military and transferring those things to local police departments. And so now... You know, when you look at the police, they look more like U.S. forces designed right. to deal with the enemy on foreign soil instead of fellow Americans and those who are in the United States. So I think that until we start to look at some of the underpinnings of why we have crime and actually dealing with those issues, we're going to continue to have some of these issues. Mm -hmm. So in terms of mental health, in terms of substance abuse, in terms of lack of um, career opportunities, in terms of lack of um, just food resources, until we start to deal with some of those things, then 
we're going to continue to have these issues over and over again. So I do believe, and again, and I say organizations looking at their budgets, um, to me that means that this is a city by city, jurisdiction by jurisdiction issue. So um, I think that having more mental health professionals who are more equipped to deal with somebody who's having a mental health crisis there on scene to deal with that um, police quite frankly, they're, you know, they may receive a little training on that, but they're not mm. the subject matter experts. Right. So, you know, where police are very helpful in, you know, maintaining order, you know, they're probably less equipped to deal with someone who's having a mental health crisis. One of the things that I'm proud of Virginia for doing is that this July, we've had a change in what I call our overdose law. Mm. So, the change in the overdose law basically says that there are certain crimes that if they are connected with a person having an overdose, then those certain crimes um, essentially won't be prosecuted. That's a change um, mm. from what we had before. Now, it, it doesn't excuse you from uh, having... Uh, illegal narcotics in all capacities. Right. So I would encourage you to do a little research, read the law for yourself. So what what Jennifer isn't saying is that you can have illegal narcotics and claim you had an overdose and that might be it. That is not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is that um, Virginia has made a conscious decision that we are going to treat people who are having overdoses in a different category. Now, Hold on one second. Let me say this. Along with that, though, is a lot of times what we would do with those people is that by them being in the system, we would have probation. We would have resources that um, being in the system would afford you. Sometimes that looks like drug court. Sometimes that looks like, um, you know, resources in the community. The problem with the overdose law is that now those people will not be within the purview of the courts. So now, what do we do with them? Now, how do they get treatment? So can they, do they have community resources where they can go and it's cost effective for them to get treatment? Or are we just saying, we're not gonna deal with that at all. We're gonna just, just not deal with it on the criminal side, but not put money into funding resources so that these people can get help. Yeah, well, I think that's a fine line. You know, I mean, I guess, I don't know, I guess we hate to wake up in the hospital with an overdose and say, oh, you've been, you've been charged with the drugs you just used. You know, and, and, and not to make light of that, but at the same time, I mean, this is going to drive me to my question. I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. You know, um, the efforts to look at drug addiction in general, you know, has been criminalized. Right. It's been, you know, it's been criminalizing what we're trying to, I guess you have to look at it as a health issue, you know, more so than, uh, you know, than a criminal. And I'm not talking about like you were bringing in, you know, 100 kilos from, you know, from Mexico or wherever. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, if, if someone is a legitimate, has a legitimate um, a, a addiction to um, to drugs, then I, I think it should be looked at as a um a, a health issue rather than a criminal matter. Now, if that's if that's a barrier, if you don't get arrested, then you don't have access to to this or that. It's crazy. 
It's absolutely insane to say, if, if I don't get to arrest you, then you're going to miss out on some of these good um, community programs that we have. No, just, re, just reallocate. I mean, just change it. I mean, there's it's, it's no defense for that. I mean, you're a prosecutor, but I'm just saying, um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't see that. If, if you wake up in the, I mean, if you, if you have a problem, just because we didn't get to arrest you should have no bearing on the care that you received. Well, I, I think that um, you're saying if what I heard you say, you know, we're lawyers are creatures. You're like a of, lawyers are creatures of words. So I'm listening to the words that you're using and using this uh, student loan debt to pick apart what you're saying. Um, I think what what I heard you say is that a legitimate issue with drugs. So when you go back and you talk about legitimate, so how do you define when someone has a legitimate drug issue? That's issue number one. I think issue number two is that um, clearly everyone that, um, that encounters the police um, who is possessing um, an illegal narcotic um, sometimes those folks are, um, it's not their first time. Sometimes it's they're at a point where um, they haven't done anything on their own and they come within the purview of the police. And at this point in time, it's still illegal to possess um, Schedule One or Two narcotics. Mm -hmm. So what we're, what we're not saying is that everyone should be arrested so that they can get in the system so that they can get help. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that when police encounter someone who fits the definition of possessing illegal narcotics, then what we try to do as prosecutors is I think we try to look at the individual and make the best educated guess that we have of whether or not this person truly has a problem or whether or not we just don't have enough evidence to treat this person as a dealer. And so unfortunately, um, you know, we try to use our training and experience to differentiate the two. When we have a person that comes within the purview of the criminal justice system that has a problem, at this point in time, it is illegal. And so what we try to do is we try to get that person some help. Now, I'm sure that there are efforts to look at that person and ascertain whether or not they truly are um, someone who's addicted and they have an issue versus, you know, again, a dealer and they just, you just don't have enough to charge them with dealing drugs. Um, it is possible that at this point in time, people are looking at ways to, you know, treat this more as a medical issue. So um, are there diversion programs that are available that could be crafted? Um, you know, well, that's my next, that's my next, um, that's your next question. Right, okay. Right. You know, but what I'm saying is that at this point in time, um, who knows what the future holds? Because at one point in time, um, it wasn't even acknowledged that, um, addiction could be a medical issue. So we have come a long way, um, mm. to even make that acknowledgement. So well, well, let me let me let me get in here. Um, 
it wasn't it wasn't actually treated as a medical issue, and I think until recently, mm-hmm. you know, um, I remember doing the whole crack epidemic. You know, it was it was it was it was a criminal. But then when we had opioids, the big opioids that start happening um, the last few years, and that wasn't affecting the African American community as much as it was affecting you know other communities. Then it, then and only only then. You know that it was it was switched over. It was almost like, again, you know, I see I see a moving of the goalposts. Mm-hmm. You know, it was you know okay now that you know all you guys are old in. I mean, I don't wish it on anyone, but you know um, now it's a medical issue, and we really need to think long and hard about getting these people some medical care. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, it's <laughs> politics are, are, are all local and everything, and so you know they have had the drug courts, the mental health courts. Um, veterans courts, et cetera. How do you have you had feel like they have a had a noticeable impact on recidivism? Absolutely. Um, you know, in my career, I had the privilege of prosecuting in the Norfolk Commonwealth Attorney's Office, and um, during my tenure there, I was able to attend um, drug court graduations. I was able to attend. Um, hearings that involved clients who were participating in drug court or wanted Mm. to participate um, in drug court. Um, And so I'm a big fan of drug court. Um, In Newport News, we have our own drug court there as well. I'm a big fan because that the drug court program is one which is – it has a concept of kind of wraparound services. So they deal with – the individual from a holistic level. Um, And so I do think that they're successful. I do think that they assist in recidivism. Um, Do y'all have mental health court? um, In Norfolk, I know that there is a mental health court. Um, In Newport News, um, I know our general district court gets involved um, from a mental health court standard on the Mm -hmm. general district court level. And what we do, what we try to do there is kind of a diversion program that, you know, it was very clear when um, one of the attorneys in our office and one of the judges in general district court got together and kind of put this program together with a lot of hard work. And there was an acknowledgement there that sometimes crimes are committed because a person really has an underlying underlying Mm. mental health problem. So where we can... Um, every charge is not eligible and every person is not eligible, but where we can, we try to deal with the underlying mental health issue, um, kind of through some kind of like a diversionary program where in the end, if someone is successful, then, you know, they have, they may have the opportunity to get those charges null prost based on their successful completion of that program. So I don't have any statistics in terms of the recidivism rate for um, our mental health court and general district court, but I have to believe that you know when you take someone and you stabilize them in terms of their mental health issues, that 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 person stands a great chance, especially if they can continue that stabilization, not coming back to court for those same issues. Absolutely. Okay. Um- we're just about out of time. We have a few more minutes, but I did have a a couple of um, questions for you. Um, a couple more. 
Well, one main question. <laughs> I kind of wanted to like, you know, I wanted to kind of like maybe not deprogram you, but you know, what are your thoughts about this, the um, state of the criminal justice system with respect to the current climate? Um, and what I mean by that, okay, I remember um, uh, before, before George Floyd, and I, I look at, I tend to look at things pre and post George Floyd now. Okay. And so, um, I remember before George Floyd, I was like, um, I just had a certain level of respect, you know, for the police department. In mm -hmm. some instances, like no matter what, whether I was speeding or not, if I <laughs> see a police car, I take my foot off the gas. The first thing that I, <laughs> that I did, I felt that way. You know, and post George Floyd, you know, I, I might look out my car and like, what? And really have that look on my face. And no, I mean, I, I, you know, say it ain't so, but, but that's, it, it changed me to the point where, you know, like, what do y'all want now? You know, and so my question is with respect when I say the current climate, do you see it from the viewpoint of a pragmatist or an idealist? Hmm, that's a good question, um, as all of them are. Uh, I think I see uh, the current climate from um, an idealist about the future. Um, and I have to see it that way. I have to believe that, um, that the social movement, the... Um, the thoughts about how to change how um, police organizations deal with the public, I have to be hopeful that all this is not for naught, that there are going to be some um, substantial changes that come about due to this current climate. I will tell you that throughout my legal career, whether it was as a defense attorney or a prosecutor, I have come into contact with some great officers, some great men and women who take their job seriously to um, protect and serve, and they do that every day on an honorable basis. Then you have some who have demonstrated to our society that um, they are not protecting and serving. And I think that those officers um, should be removed. Um, I think that... Um, there should be a mechanism that if men and women who, were, who take that oath to protect and serve are not doing that, they should not be able to wear that badge. They should not be able to carry that firearm. Um, so um, I'm very hopeful. I think that um, I'm happy that there are many checks and balances um, that people are talking about nowadays. Um, I think that um, with the movement, people want to see change. Now, of course, you're going to have that segment of people that, you know, they're at the extremes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think overall, I think most people, when you sit down and maybe actually have a conversation with someone, that promotes understanding. Now, it may not absolutely change your degree of thinking 180 degrees, but actually sitting down and understanding points of views does promote understanding. I think that, um, so I'm hopeful. Before I go, I just wanted to give a plug um, for people of color. Um, if you 
are thinking about going to law school and you want to be a part of the justice system, being a prosecutor is a great place to be. Um, we need more people of color. We need more black people, more black men or women. You can do justice as a prosecutor just as much as you can do justice as a defense attorney. So if you're thinking about law school, um, I would or you have graduated and you're thinking about what you would like your career path to at least consist of, please consider being a prosecutor. We need you. And you heard it right here first. <laughs> no, um, but we just want to thank um, Assistant Newport News Commonwealth Attorney uh, for coming out, uh, Jennifer Williams. Pleasure having you on the show. Uh, and we'll catch you guys later. Remember, always keep it unfiltered.